Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. We have got a cast-iron assurance and a guarantee from the British government. The particular problems around the Irish border are being used politically to try to frustrate Brexit. Northern Ireland must leave uh, the European Union on the same terms as the rest of the United Kingdom. Northern Ireland would form part of our customs territory. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London correspondent, just arrived in Dublin. And I'm Colm O'Mongoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor, also in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. The Brexit clock is ticking louder than ever. The UK is now certain to leave the EU in just a few weeks' time as Boris Johnson wields his mighty majority. Yes, indeed, the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, which destroyed Theresa May, has just passed its third stage in the House of Commons with barely a whimper. We'll assess the last gasp efforts of Northern Ireland's political parties and businesses to change the bill to guarantee unfettered trade across the Irish Sea. Meanwhile, the new European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, love bombs her way into Downing Street for her first meeting with Boris Johnson, but leaves a sour taste with her warnings that a future relationship cannot be concluded by the end of the year. We look at what's at stake in those upcoming trade negotiations, what a level playing field looks like, and why the future for the EU and UK might look more like Switzerland than Canada. But first, over to you, Sean. Um, This week and the Commons, what was going on there? It was the withdrawal agreement bill column uh, getting Brexit done. Still not fully done yet, of course, because it has to go to the House of Lords, then get signed by the Queen, then that's the British end of it done, and then it's it's the European Parliament who have to ratify the agreement, uh, which we think is going to be on the 29th of uh, this month. But yes, it's still winning its way through, and in terms of the House of Commons... They had the all-important second stage vote just before Christmas. Uh, Then it went to the committee stage, which was held on Tuesday and Wednesday of this week before uh, a final stage uh, vote uh, on Thursday uh, evening, which the government, uh, of course, won handsomely with that stonking great majority, to quote uh, Prime Minister Johnson uh, himself. As for the committee stage, there had been complaints before Christmas that there wasn't enough time that this uh, for full and proper debate. But as it turned out, uh, they couldn't even fill the 16 hours that had been set aside over two days uh, for discussion of the bill. Uh, largely, the Labour Party were non-show. They didn't really have the heart uh, to fight this one uh, all the of the way. The fight's gone out of it, is it? The Labour Party fight is more concentrated on the internal leadership competition, maybe. Very much, very much. Um, the, the backbenchers were conspicuous by their absence. Um, so were the frontbenchers as well. Uh, and the Liberal Democrats uh, also uh, nursing their wounds uh, from uh, an electoral mauling, uh, has to be said. The only people, though, who were putting up a fight was the Scottish National Party, uh, and that was quite a, an interesting display, particularly uh, in the final stage. They were trying to uh, stop a third reading uh, of the bill because on Wednesday night, the 
uh, Scottish Parliament had voted not to give its consent uh, to the Brexit Withdrawal Agreement Bill, uh, setting up a, a conflict, a direct conflict with the Conservatives. Uh, and they were inviting the Conservatives to come on, trample over Scottish democracy, uh, which they duly did. Um, and this sets up a grievance which the SNP are now going to uh, Setting the work. mood music for a potential future referendum. This is, you know, a, a long march by this uh, Scottish National Party. They've been at this for decades, as indeed have the Brexiters. Uh, we saw Sir Bill Cash uh, there in the final hour of debate uh, on Thursday evening saying about what a great day it was for British democracy, etc., etc. He, of course, has been a long, lifelong uh, trenchant critic of the European Union, uh, really one of the, the key architects, I guess, of Brexit. And he's there still to uh, see uh, his life's work to completion. That, I suppose, uh, would give heart to the SNP as well, uh, because they can see that if you spend decade after decade chipping away at something, you might actually get a result out of it. So watch that space north of the English border. And Tony, in terms of observations from Brussels, this is regarded really as a foregone conclusion. Even the visit of the President of the European Commission, which we'll be getting into in a moment, was all done through the lens of the withdrawal agreement is a foregone conclusion. Let's talk about the future relationship. So no real dramas about the debate in the Commons from your end of things. No, not at all. I mean, people here have been much more uh, distracted by events in the Middle East. Uh, and of course, once the election was over back in December, everybody realised that that was it. There was not going to be a second referendum. Boris Johnson would get this thing through in short order uh, and that Brexit was going to be a reality on the 31st of January. And I think overall people are... Uh, resigned, reconciled to that, uh, you know, anxious to get things moving. This has been a tremendous drag on the European Union for the past three years and people are keen to get on with the trade negotiations and the future relationship negotiations. Of course, as Sean said, the European Parliament has to give its ratification uh, and they're going to leave that very much to the last minute. Um, I think people suspect that the European Parliament always likes to have a little bit of drama uh, when they can make that happen. Uh, but we're all now set for Brexit Day on the 31st of January. So that means, of course, that MEPs, uh, British MEPs, including MEPs from Northern Ireland, will no longer have those jobs at the end of the month. So people are going to be packing up their offices here in Brussels and in Strasbourg. Uh, the last plenary session for those MEPs is going to be in Strasbourg next week. So you have people like Diane Dodds, Martina Anderson uh, and uh, the the... the Alliance and Amy Long, uh, MEP, those three MEPs from Northern Ireland, who will be, you know, packing up, uh, having only just been elected last May, they're going to be packing up their offices and heading off. So uh, everyone now here in Brussels is really gearing up for uh, for the next stage. Tony, just before we get into, as I say, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, President of the European Commission, visit to London on Monday, Phil Hogan, the Trade Commissioner, was in Dublin and he has adopted a particular tone with regard to the utterances of the United Kingdom. On the one hand, he's managing expectations in terms of what can be achieved in the future relationship negotiations. He's cast doubt on the idea that it could be achieved by the end of the year. And at the same time, he's also casting doubt on what has been said by the British government, in particular the Prime Minister, saying that, well, he's heard the Prime Minister say many things over the last year and he has abandoned those things. Well, I, I, I heard the British Prime Minister saying uh, in 2019 that uh, a lot of things, 
that ultimately he didn't do. Uh, and I'm taking uh, that particular uh, precedent as an opportunity for us not to get too worried uh, in the initial phase of these uh, negotiations, but nevertheless to take them seriously based on the, f on the reality between now and the end of June that we do need to ensure that the UK and the EU understand each other well, understand the implications of what we're saying to each other, that the UK needs to understand the implications of what they are saying about putting new amendments in the legislation about having everything resolved by the end of June. And President von der Leyen will be visiting the UK on Wednesday and will be making these particular issues very clear to the UK Prime Minister. And we hope that the UK Prime Minister, based on being fully informed about the implications of all of those particular statements that he's making, will be able to have a more common sense approach and a pragmatic solutions to many of the issues that we're trying to negotiate with him. And that nobody will die in the ditch. What do you detect from Phil Hogan's tone on what it might be designed to achieve, if anything? Well, Phil Hogan has always adopted a fairly, you know, assertive, uh, you know, lean-in kind of approach to uh, rhetoric and to diplomacy. You know, he was uh, famously outspoken during the Brexit negotiations, the, the, the divorce uh, nego negotiations. He was an outspoken defender of the European Union when the referendum campaign was happening back in 2016. He was the only commissioner who was allowed to get his boots on the ground in the UK and to visit agricultural meetings and to talk to farmers and anyone who would listen and uh, you know people think he did a fairly good job from an EU's point of view um, you know and he's famously uh, not shy about coming forward with uh, strong language so uh, this is probably another example of that uh, but I, I would say you know there, there certainly has been in the past few months of the last year there has been a feeling that look Boris Johnson has promised not to extend the transition period beyond the end of December uh, this year uh, and that he is sworn blind that the, the end of December that'll be it, the, the UK will be uh, completely out because of course even though they're, they're out at the end of January the transition means that everything stays the same uh, but most people think the future relationship can't be done in that period of time um, and so there has been a bit of a narrative that you know, well, he's said things that he's disregarded in the past. He's right. shown that he can U-turn uh, on a sixpence if it suits him. He did it in October with the withdrawal agreement uh, with the, the Irish border and, and the, the border and the Irish Sea and so on, and didn't seem to be punished for it. Um, sure, but, but uh, there is... as was pointed out by um, one of our followers on, on Twitter, Sean, he didn't have an 80 seat majority at the time he did his last U-turns. That's true. Um, I've always seen Boris Johnson as an absolute pragmatist and somebody who will uh, turn on a sixpence to get what uh, he needs to do uh, done. Um, the question now, though, is does he need to um, extend uh, that deadline? Yeah, in terms of trying to get a big, fully comprehensive trade deal, I'd, I'd agree with, with Tony and most of the other observers on this thing. It's just too much stuff into too small uh, an amount of time um, before we get to the actual mechanics of how you, you do these EU trade deals. There's just a vast array of areas. And, of course, it's not just trade that they're talking about. Uh, von der Leyen was very... Uh, pointed in uh, her comments during the week about security and not just because she's a former uh, German defence minister but because security is one of those big, big issues uh, in the uh, EU-UK relationship regardless of whether they're in the EU or out of the EU uh, and there's an awful lot of ground to be covered there and if you're trying to wrap everything 
into one set of future relationship talks. It is just too much. If you're going to stick to that hard deadline of the end of the year, and the Conservatives do have a logic in that, their belief is the EU does nothing until you have uh, an absolute hard deadline. Um, They didn't apply that to themselves, of course, but... uh, they reckon you won't get a, a deal cracked unless you have pressure on, uh, and that's why they're saying we're, we're not going to extend at all. He does have this uh, pretty big rump of ERG people in his party now that he does have to uh, contend with as well. So he doesn't want to go down the same route that Theresa May and John Major and quite a few other uh, leaders of the Tory party have gone down where they are uh, sniped at constantly from their own backbenches because of a, a what's seen as a big policy U-turn. Instead, it looks like they're going to go for this bare-bones uh, trade-in goods deal by the end of the year and then do just a constant negotiation with the EU and pick off bits and pieces as and when they can. Well, Phil Hogan on on Monday was saying that the purpose of Ursula von der Leyen's visit on Wednesday uh, to the UK was to manage Boris Johnson's expectations or to make it absolutely clear to him what the fallout would be if he stuck to the line that he has stuck to so far. So to channel our inner football pundit here, her speech to the London School of Economics on Wednesday, it was a speech of two halves, Sean, wasn't it? It was a speech of two halves. I mean, the first half was this big love bombing, that seems to be the phrase of the week, doesn't it, of the British uh, saying uh, how much she loved and admired Britain and basing it on her own experiences. She didn't go into the uh, much more fun experiences that uh, some of the profiles have, have dug up on her of her basically punk rock days in uh, London in the LSE as a student in the late 70s, a big fan of the Buzzcocks apparently, Uh, lots of late nights not leaving the door uh, properly closed uh, in the um, apartment that um, seems to have belonged to a future Polish finance minister Um, So she had a huge amount of fun, uh, admitted in the speech that she'd spent a lot of time in the bars of Soho and the record shops in Camden Town uh, and not very much time studying in the LSE. She's really painting a picture there, wasn't she? Certainly was. That's probably why she never became an economist. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, well... It sounded like an idyllic youth, really, didn't it? Uh, but it was a great year for her, and uh, it did bring about a, a sort of genuine warmth, uh, I think, in her um, appreciation of Britain and the British. And I think it was a good way to start uh, that speech. So part one was really good, but of course the uh, brutal news media types, such as myself, uh, constrained by time, had to go straight in on part two, which was uh, the relationship between Britain and the EU cannot and will not be the same Uh, in the future as it has been up to now. So all these ideas you guys have of having unfettered access to the EU market, business as usual, everything staying the same, essentially saying, forget about it, lads. There's a big, big job of work to be done here. The European Union is ready to negotiate a truly ambitious and comprehensive new partnership with the United Kingdom. We will make as much as we can. We will go as far as we can, but the truth is that our partnership cannot and will not be the same as before. And it cannot and will not be as close as before, because with every choice comes a consequence. With every decision comes a trade-off. Without the free movement of people, you cannot have the free movement of capital goods, and services. Without a level playing field on environment, labor, taxation, and state aid, 
you cannot have the highest quality access to the world's largest single market. The more divergence there is, the more distant the partnership will be. And without an extension of the transition period beyond 2020, you cannot ex expect to agree on every single aspect of our new partnership. We will have to prioritize. The European Union's objective in the negotiations are clear. We will work for solutions that uphold the integrity of the European Union, its single market, and its customs union. There can be no compromise on that. And key to that, Tony, is this idea of the level playing field. So we might as well kick off with a decent explanation of what level playing field considerations are in this, our first podcast of January. Yes, of course, this is going to be a phrase that we'll hear a lot about. And in fact, the EU has been fairly um, hard line on this from the very beginning uh, in various European Council conclusions going back to 2017, 2018. They've always inserted that demand that the future relationship between the UK and the EU will be based on a level playing field. In other words, the UK cannot become a low regulation, uh, low tax economy that effectively undercuts the European Union uh, at every turn. Uh, we've, we've heard phrases like Singapore on Thames um, uh, and, and the, the fear that the UK will be this buccaneering, free trading, uh, low, low regulation economy that will simply um, you know, outmaneuver the EU. Well, they, they can become it if they will. want. They just won't have access to the single market if they exactly. do, isn't that it? Yeah, exactly. So, so, the, so the, both sides have effectively signed up to this idea of a trade deal that will have zero tariffs and zero quotas. Now, that's in, as we know, that's in the political declaration, which is the blueprint for this future trade relationship uh, that accompanies the withdrawal agreement. They've both signed up to that. Uh, and that that political declaration also includes this talk of a level playing field. Now, since then, uh, you know, the, the, you've got the, the three zeros. It's not two zeros anymore. It's it's zero tariffs, zero quotas, and zero dumping. So you've had that. You've got this rhetorical edge to any of the EU pronouncements on this, and that's what Ursula von der Leyen was doing in London on Wednesday. Michel Barnier did the same in Stockholm on Thursday. And these this is very important because these are interlinked. So in other words, if if the UK doesn't sign up to a level playing field uh, provision, in other words that they, they don't commit themselves to, to keeping the same standards uh, that they have at the moment as EU members, then the other two zeros fall away. So you don't automatically get zero tariffs and zero quotas. And that's important because if that happens, then we are into a classic free trade negotiation where you've got line by line uh, horse trading over this product against that product. Uh, not so much in industrial goods because the EU keeps fairly low tariffs on those anyway, but on something very sensitive like uh, agriculture, agri-food, butter, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so if, if Boris Johnson disregards the promise to uh, to keep uh, standards as they are at the moment and keep them in line with the EU, then that means the free trade negotiation itself uh, will take forever. It'll take for, for years. But, Sean, the statement that was released, by the statements that were released by both uh, Ursula von der Leyen and Boris Johnson after that meeting on Wednesday set the basis for future talks it was 
non-specific, but what Downing Street did say is that the UK would be free of UK or free of EU regulations, but they would maintain the highest standards. So are we looking at the third way here where the UK is saying, well, they'll be our standards, and if they happen to be the EU standards, then so be it. We'll call them the highest standards and pretend they have nothing to do with Europe. It, might that be the strategy? Yes, uh, I, I think so. And and one of the phrases that you hear around Whitehall is, we want the freedom to diverge. doesn't necessarily mean we are going to diverge, but we want the freedom to diverge. And again, if you want to get the ERG A monogamous back, open marriage. If, that's one way of looking at it. But, but they, they, <laughs> they certainly want this idea of freedom of action. And I think certainly in, in the civil service level, they understand that actions have consequences and they understand that relationship between the holy trinity of zero tariffs, quotas and dumping. Um, but they will be keen to keep their own freedom of action uh, in there uh, and try and maximise and do what they can. Also, the, the, the thing about EU um, regulations is there tend to be minimum regulations, uh, a floor below which you're not supposed to drop rather than a, a, a big high bar that everybody is supposed to jump up to and reach. I mean, some people have to reach up to it, but not everybody. Uh, and in the case of uh, Britain, they can credibly argue that they do have higher standards in certain areas. Uh, and we also had heard a, a, a statement from the uh, governor of the Bank of England, the outgoing governor, Mark Carney, uh, saying, of course, they want to have control of the regulation of financial services in London because they have a very high standard of financial services regulation. They're a very high standard. So there is right on both sides in this one. And there is a way through on this. Uh, Tony, the, the, the difficulty comes that if the UK kicks off the process, which it says it will do, of trying to cl- conclude trade deals with people other than the European Union and in terms of trade of goods and trade of, of food products then we're into the issues over how these standards are maintained in two areas say agricultural products coming from the USA and how the European Union can be guaranteed that imports into the single market won't be contaminated as they'd see it by that and also the issue of something like chemicals where the European Union is keen on the enforcement of the REACH directive that the chemical elements of everything must be traceable and in line with European standards. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to distinguish here between, you know, what, what, what on the one hand, uh, level playing fields provisions and what, what they call non-regression clauses uh, and um, the the other question of alignment. Um, now, alignment, if, if the UK were to align with EU regulations, that would be tantamount to be kind of in the single market. Uh, and in fact, you know, let, let's go back to Theresa May again. I mean, she was prepared to have this common rule book where there was what they called dynamic alignment. So the UK would be more or less aligning with EU regulations across the board. Level playing field provisions or, or non-regression clauses are somewhat different. That just means that you you declare and promise that the standards that you have going into the trade negotiation um, don't drop. Um, uh, and, you know, th- that's a broader uh, uh, definition of standards. It doesn't mean that if you have a non-regression clause or if you sign up to level playing field provisions, that doesn't mean that you sort of sally forth into the single market without any friction at all. You're still going to have friction uh, in terms of, uh, you know, regulations, uh, animal health, food safety and, and so on. Um, so so those are those, those are two different things. But um, of course, you're right to say that, you know, a big issue for the UK will be what does it do with food standards uh, 
Teresa Villiers, the uh, I think she's now the Environment Secretary or, or Agriculture Secretary, um, said this week that the UK would not be importing uh, the famous chlorinated chicken from the US, nor would they be importing uh, hormone-injected beef from the US. So I think they are aware of the the toxicity of these issues for consumers and voters. And also they know that if they do uh, start lowering their standards and letting this stuff in, then, you know, that that's going to, uh, in turn, inhibit their access to the EU single market. And also, uh, and it's important to get back to this, it's going to affect uh, the Irish Sea border. Um, and this was pointed out to me yesterday by a, a senior diplomat who said... We're going to be watching the whole question of, of divergence very closely because the more the UK diverges on standards uh, or regulations, then the more we will have to enforce the Irish Sea border. Because, of course, the hope is that the, the checks and controls on goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, uh, the hope is that they will be very light touch, that they will be de-dramatised in Michel Barnier's famous phrase um, and that there'll be a lot of exemptions and derogations and mitigations so that Northern Ireland businesses are not badly affected but if Boris Johnson does go off on a Singapore on Thames uh, model then the EU is going to be watching very carefully uh, that Northern Ireland doesn't then become a backdoor into the single market for for goods that are not properly uh, regulated and don't meet uh, EU standards. Right, Sean, uh, the Northern Ireland MPs in, in the Commons this week making a valiant effort to unite and deal with some of their concerns about that very issue, disruption between GB and NI. That's right. Uh, we had uh, some joint motions uh, put down to try and amend that withdrawal agreement bill uh, around this issue of unfettered access to the uh, UK market, where you had uh, the DUP, the SDLP and the Alliance Party uh, all putting in a joint motion on that, as well as a number of, of primarily DUP motions um, seeking uh, to have similar uh, issues inserted in, like uh, excluding the possibility of having not available in Northern Ireland or this product does not ship to Northern Ireland, uh, going into UK law or being allowed in the UK, uh, that uh, effectively they would be more and more cut off from the UK. Now, that was all well and good, well-intentioned, backed very much by Northern Ireland business, industrial and farming uh, lobbies as well, uh, but they ran into that massive stonking rate Tory majority right, as well. There it is again. They were not in the mood for taking amendments to the withdrawal bill, and all amendments were repelled. Okay, and staying with Northern Ireland, um, what appears to be, as we record this on uh, Friday, uh, somewhat of a breakthrough with regard to breaking the deadlock with the restoration of the devolved assembly in Stormont. Anything there, Brexit wise, Tony, that would that feeds into what we've seen uh, in the post-wirral reality of Brexit and the role of Northern Ireland therein. Yes, indeed, Colm. There is uh, an annex to the um, what's called the New, De- New Decade New Deal paper from the British and Irish governments, uh, and that uh, annex talks about Brexit and the relationship with the European Union and the Northern Ireland Protocol in the withdrawal agreement, which we've been talking about. Um, now, there's a couple of things in there that are interesting. One is that the UK said that they promised to legislate uh, in order to guarantee that there's unfettered access uh, for goods from Northern Ireland going in uh, to Great Britain. Now, that, that's a kind of an interesting promise to make because the British government have already conceded that you will have to have exit declarations for goods um, going from Northern Ireland 
into the, the Great Britain uh, internal market. Um, that's for uh, WTO reasons. They're all, they also might want to you know, make sure that there are goods coming into uh, the Republic of Ireland from other parts of the single market that then might find their way into Britain via Northern Ireland uh, that might complicate or, or um, interfere with a free trade agreement that the UK has elsewhere with a, another third country. Um, now, there's nothing in there which says that they will have unfettered access for trade from Great Britain into Northern Ireland, of course, because they can't, because the Irish Protocol uh, forbids that. They've also promised that uh, Stormont executives and representatives, um, possibly MLAs, can take part in meetings of the what's called the Specialised Committee. This is part of the Joint Committee, which will uh, implement the whole Irish Protocol. Uh, but again, that's something that was already promised that was already an option for the UK to have so you can see that they're trying to make up for the lack of um, embracing of those amendments that Sean was talking about Uh, but if you look closely at at what's been offered it's it's not a huge amount to be honest Okay well the studio we're using is going to be used after the top of the hour by sports to to read a bulletin from it so we could be into some hard and difficult negotiations with our colleague Siobhan Madigan who uh, I, I saw floating past the window of this studio earlier so in just in the concluding few minutes, Sean and Tony, I'm going to go to you on how both sides are ramping up and preparing for these negotiations uh, that lie ahead. To you, Tony, first, how is Brussels posturing itself in advance of the talks that are likely to, to come post late February, I think, is, is what the European Commission are saying they should have the mandate by? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a tremendous amount of preparation, uh, not least because we have a new commission, we have a new European Parliament. Uh, a lot of the Brexit coordinators who worked for the member states here in Brussels uh, have, have been replaced by, by newcomers. So there's a big kind of what they call pedagogical exercise going on. Everybody's been boning up on all the issues. Uh, uh, today, being Friday, is is the start really of a series of seminars that the European Commission is holding with member states. Basically, they're saying to member states, you tell us what you want out of these trade negotiations and we'll make sure that that's in the mandate that you will then endorse uh, on the 25th of February so that the trade negotiations can get off underway. So these uh, seminars will cover everything from you know level playing field, as we've been speaking about. They will cover the, the overall free trade agreement, uh, energy, aviation, uh, research, the whole gamut of the, the future relationship. Okay, Sean. Well, the British say they're ready. Uh, and the Johnny Foreigner Europeans, they're not ready and they won't be ready because of their own internal processes. They say looking down their nose, not um, really paying much attention to the fact they've spent 13 months trying to get one piece of legislation ratified in their own parliament in order to get them to this point of being ready. Uh, they are also saying um, not only are they ready, but their mandate is the mandate that was set out in the Conservative Manifesto. So the Conservative Manifesto is now the holy writ that is guiding everything being done out of uh, Westminster uh, and of course that was endorsed by the people in a vote or at least the 43% that voted for the Conservatives so if you want to know what their mandate is uh, get on the Conservative Party's website and you can uh, find it in there Uh, other than that they are uh, concerned with trying to take the initiative in these talks uh, and trying to get things down early in writing uh, and set the structure for the talks because they think that they were bounced into things uh, during the uh, last lot of negotiations anybody who read Article 50 thinks uh, otherwise. Uh, one of the other areas that they're brandishing uh, at the Commission is the whole area of fishing rights uh, and the very uh, hard nationalistic tone that's being set there. Uh, a huge fight may be brewing over a really, really tiny 
part of the European and UK economy employing a really, really small number of people, but a huge amount of political capital might be expended in a pretty unpleasant fight right up front. Right, and on this side of the water, the preparation, uh, of course, or the catalyst that Brexit has been is with the withdrawal agreement passed. Uh, the, there are constructive, quote-unquote, talks being held between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, uh, the two largest parties, as to whether or not the life of this government will rumble on or whether we'll have an election in February. So uh, we'll wait and see by the time the European mandate is agreed by the end of February just who'll be sitting in the hot seat in government buildings in Dublin. But for another edition of Brexit Republic for this week, that's all from me, Colm O'Mungan, and RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. And me, Sean Whelan, RT's London Editor, also temporarily in Dublin just for the weekend. And for me, Tony Connolly, RT's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.